Galatians is a book, as you likely know, that teaches justification by faith alone, justification without the works of the law. That's the main doctrinal message. Chapter 6 is a point in the book where the apostle is making applications that stem out of this main doctrinal message. So let's begin reading with verse 1 of Galatians 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, he which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate to him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary well doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a, share, a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We call our attention this evening to verses 9 and 10 for our text. And let us be weary, let us not be weary in well doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is significant and noteworthy that the book of Galatians comes to its end they calling to do good works. As I mentioned before we began reading this evening, if there is a thread that runs through the epistle of Galatians, it is the message that justification is by faith without the works of the law. That was the main threat to the Galatian churches. It was the threat of the Judaizers who said, 
that you must be justified by your faith, but not by faith only, also by the works of the law. Paul said that's a false gospel. Faith and works is a false gospel. He gave it the anathema. Yet, the concluding exhortation in the book of Galatians, unambiguously, is a call to do good works. comes after verse 10, beginning at verse 11, really Paul's extended signature. It's likely that when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he wrote it through a scribe. He dictated the words to the scribe all the way up to verse 10. Then beginning at verse 11, he wrote with his own hand, which is why he says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand, meaning verse 11 to the end of the book. That's his personal signature where he makes his own personal confession in light of the doctrine that he's been teaching in this book. But the final admonition of the book, the final admonition that comes out of the doctrinal message of the book really is verse 10, which is this. As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all men especially unto them who are of the household of faith. It ought to catch our attention that Paul ends this epistle with this exhortation. On the one hand, that sends a signal that the gospel of justification by faith alone is not at all in conflict with a life of good works. The issue that Paul had with the Judaizers is not that they talked about good works. It's not even that they talked a lot about good works issue Paul had with the Judaizers is that they made good works into an obstacle for being accepted by God. The gospel teaches us that all obstacles to God have been removed by Christ for everyone who believes. That being established, however, there is plenty of room to call the Christian to live a life of good works. Furthermore, that this is the final exhortation of this book indicates not only that the gospel is in harmony with a life of good works, but really that the gospel itself is tailor-made for a life of good works. That's the ironic thing about the Judaizers' doctrine of works righteousness. Judaizers said we must do good works to God and to our neighbor in order to be righteous. And what is the result of that teaching? Well, the result of that teaching of faith and works to be righteous is a total preoccupation with myself. Self-love. Fear of damnation, like we read about in the Belgian Confession. Now I'm doing good to God and the neighbor not. Well, I'm doing good to God and the neighbor so that I can be righteous, which really means I'm using other people, using God even, for my own benefit. That's the Judaizers' doctrine. But the gospel ought to have exactly the opposite effect. The gospel says all obstacles have been removed in Christ, and I am acceptable to God by faith, and therefore I do not need to use God, and I do not need to use my neighbor in order to gain status or righteousness or anything else. I'm free now to look outside of myself and to seek the advantage and salvation of somebody other than me, a neighbor. 
and to do so in a love that is free and self-giving. So this final admonition really is the main application that arises out of the gospel that is taught here in the book of Galatians, which is why he begins the word with, Therefore, therefore, in light of everything that I've been teaching you, Paul says, in light of the gospel that justification is by faith alone without the work of the law, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially the day of the household of faith. That's what I call our attention to tonight, to apply our receiving of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which taught us the gospel of free grace this morning. Let's hear the admonition of this text. Do good to all men. First, we will identify the outward-looking life. Do good unto all men. Secondly, the anchor at home, especially the household of faith. And then finally, the eye on the harvest. For in due season we shall reap, Paul says in verse 9, if we faint not. The calling of the text, if you strip it down to its most basic, is simply this. Let us do good, or let us do the good. And I said, the good, on purpose. The little word God does not show up in the King James or in any of the English translations because we don't usually speak that way about things like goodness and beauty. We say, we say do good or do good works. Well, the problem is when you say it that way, it makes you zero in right away on the particulars. Good things, good works, good specific actions. But the word the does appear in the original language. When Paul says, let us do good unto all men, he's saying, let us do the good. And that word the is there on purpose. The good means we're not just talking about anything in particular yet, any specific good work, but we are talking about good in absolute terms. Now already right there, you see, the Apostle has us looking outside of ourselves. Outside of ourselves, before we are thinking about any specific thing that we might do with our hands, or any word that we might say with our mouths, let us look outside of ourselves to the good. And what is the good? Well, immediately, we ought to have God in our minds. God. God is the good. Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 18, that there is none good but one, even God. God is good in the way nothing else is or can be. God is transcendent goodness, who is totally and perfectly good in and of himself. And he is therefore the source of all goodness, so that if anything else has good in it, it is the good that comes from God. The first article of the Belgian Confession is describes God as the overflowing fountain of all good. Now, the Apostle does mean for us to do good works with our hands and with our minds and with our hearts, but it's important that we begin here with God as the source of all good because that helps us see something important, something very important when it comes to ethics and the Christian life. 
See, men will do all kinds of things that they call good. Men will even do things that are obviously evil, but they will still call them good. People send women into abortion clinics. They have their children killed, murdered, and then they will say that this is a good exercise of choice. They will subvert marriage and undermine family and God's ordering of the world. And they will say, this is a good way to be more inclusive. So how do we know what is truly good when human beings muddle things up so much that they actually call evil things good and good things evil? And the answer is you have to follow the stream back to the source. Try the spirits, whether they are of God or from God, John says. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. First John 4, verse 1. The calling of the text then is let us do the good. Let us do the good. There are two words in the original language for Verse 10, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good, as I said before, let us do the good. Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. The word there is good in the sense that something is wholesome, something is essentially good. Good like the way broccoli is good for you, even if you don't necessarily like the taste of broccoli, but it's good for you, it's good for your body, there's, there's good nutrition there. It's healthy. Then there's the word in verse 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Well, there is the word good. And it's a different word there. It's a word that refers to beauty, something that is good because it's beautiful, like a piece of art is beautiful. On God, both of these senses of good live in harmony. Goodness of God is such that if you simply know God, that's the most wholesome and healthy thing for you. Now, some of the things that God says to you might be hard to take sometimes. It might be difficult to hear his word and to take it to heart because sometimes his word comes in the form of a rebuke. Sometimes his word comes in the form of an admonition. And it doesn't feel good. But if you truly know who God is, then you will see that that essential goodness of God is in perfect harmony harmony with, with the beauty of God. God is so beautiful. God is so wonderful exactly because He is so good. He's glorious. John says, in God are life and light and also that we beheld His glory full of grace and truth. So if we're going to do good to somebody, we have to keep all of this in mind. What I want from my neighbor when I do good to him is that he will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. I'm not just interested in putting a blanket around his shoulders or a meal in his belly because if my neighbor does not know God, then giving him anything less than God, well, that's like offering a drink in a broken glass. 
Not only is it not going to satisfy him, it may aggravate his situation even more. What I want for my neighbor is life, life eternal. And what is life eternal? It's to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Let us do good, good that comes from God. But now let me be clear. The calling is to do the good. That is to do good work. I'm going to mention the original language one more time because that word work is used in verses 9 and 10. And again, it's, it's a different word in both of those verses. The word in verse 9 is well-doing. Doing, and then the word in verse 10 is let us do good. But when it says do good there, the idea is to work the good. Work the good. And I draw attention to that because work is a little bit different than doing. Doing is something that is always going on. There's never a moment in your life when you're not doing something. Even if you're sleeping unconscious in your bed, you're still doing something. Your heart is beating. Your mind is active with the dreams that you're having. You're, you're always doing something. There's always some sort of activity going on because if there wasn't, you'd be dead. Working has a little bit different connotation. Working means that now I'm doing something, but I'm doing something with a goal in mind. I have a purpose in my doing. I'm sticking my hands in the dirt and I'm cultivating the soil, not for its own sake, but because I want there to be a harvest at the end of the year. I'm taking my wrench and I'm tightening the lug nuts because I want the wheel to stay on the car. That's work. It's when you do something with a goal in mind. Let us work the good then, which is what Paul says in verse 10. As we have opportunity, let us work the good means that we are aiming to cultivate goodness with a goal in mind. As new creatures in Jesus Christ who are justified by faith, we have a spiritually renewed mind and we have a set of hands. Hands that are specifically designed by our Creator to accomplish work. And now we can use that mind and we can use those hands to accomplish something. Now doing that work may test us. But Paul calls us to it. He says, work. Work the good. Do the good. That's the first ingredient of the outward looking life. As we look up unto God as the overflowing fountain of all good and understand that all good comes from Him, let us then do work the good. But the calling is not just to do good generally, but there is a specific object to our working. And the object is very broad and very expansive. As we have opportunity, let us do good unto all. All men. All humanity. It's very clear what he means by all men. Later on, he says, especially unto the household of faith. And when he says, especially, what he's doing is he's drawing an inner circle. 
Do good, especially there. But if you have an inner circle, that implies that there's an outer circle that is broader. And that's what he's talking about when he says all men. All men as in looking outside the boundaries of the household of faith. All men as in looking outside of this congregation. All men as in looking outside the boundaries of this denomination. All men even as looking outside the boundaries of what we might call Christianity or the kingdom as it exists in the world today. Do good unto all men. Those people are of all sorts. They are of all conditions of life. They are of all classes in society, of all races and ethnicities, and of all sets of beliefs. The all men Paul has in mind are the all men, for example, whom he witnessed in the city of Athens when he stood up on Mars Hill and proclaimed a sermon about the unknown God and made that God known unto them. Men who were unbelieving, wicked philosophers. The all men Paul has in mind are the all men who today build abortion clinics and hang up rainbow flags. They are our next door neighbors. People who may or may not be Christian. People who may or may not even like us. But we are not to limit the phrase. Elect as well as reprobate. Believers as well as unbelievers. Church as well as the world. To all men, Paul says, work what is good. Now when it comes right down to it, it doesn't have to be all that complicated. Working what is good might just mean placing a cup of cold water in the hands of a little child in Jesus' name. It might mean nursing somebody to health who is suffering from a terrible sickness. Simple acts of kindness like these empowered the witness of the early Christians. This is a well-known fact of history. At a time in history when infanticide, that is, abandoning to their deaths of small infants, was a common practice, Christians were the people who were known to rescue those abandoned infants from the ditch and to give them life maybe even to give them a family. The Christians were the ones who stayed behind in the city and risked their lives if there was a plague to give attention to the sick. They were known as those who did good to all men as they had opportunity. And this charity was a weapon in the positive sense that helped to dispel the evil rumors that were circling around about the church. There are all kinds of speculations and evil ideas that men had about the church. But those rumors and speculations fell flat when people could observe the Christians taking the infants out of the ditch and caring for the sick in the plague. Be not overcome of evil, 
says Romans 12, verse 31, but overcome evil with what? With good. But in light of what we said about the good, there must be more than a cup of cold water. What that little child needs more than a cup of cold water is to hear the name of Jesus spoken to him in love. What the man dying of the plague needs more than medical attention is to hear the gospel of forgiveness in Jesus Christ and to know that there is healing through the Spirit. Working what is good to all men means bearing witness to the only good God in a world that does not know Him, that is in fact alienated from Him. Working what is good might mean what it meant for the Apostle Paul, which is bearing in our marks, bearing in our body the marks of the Lord Jesus, suffering persecution for righteousness' sake. Working what is good may speaking what is wholesome and true and righteous and pure even to a people who will not hear it who hate the message even. That's where we might become afraid and might want to pull back from doing the good to all men. And I say that not just of us, but I say that of myself. But John says there is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear. And the Gospel says, what do you have to fear? What do you have to fear? If God says that you are righteous, if God says that there is nothing that can condemn you, if God says that everything that happens to you in your life can only draw you nearer and nearer to Him, what is it that you and I have to fear? We're free from fear. Free from worrying about the response of men. Free to look outside of ourselves, outside of our comfort zone. Free to do the good. That's where the gospel of Jesus Christ leads us. If we understand it. You are justified by free grace in Christ, Paul says. Therefore, let us do the good to all men. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. The last part is what I mean by the anchor at home. The household of faith, in verse 10, is a reference to the visible church. It's really the household of the faith. Again, the word the is there in the original language, and that word is important. The faith is not just referring to the fact that a Christian is somebody who believes or that the church is a group of people who believe. But the faith refers to the specific content of the faith that the Christians in the church believe. The faith refers to the articles of the Christian faith, like the Apostles' Creed and the doctrines that are taught in the Holy Scripture and what is preached from the pulpit. The church is the household of the faith because the church is the institution where the faith is taught and proclaimed and confessed. That is why the church is here as an institute. That is what the church is all about. It's about holding up the faith, the articles of the faith, preaching it, proclaiming it, declaring it. Which is why 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Pillar not because the church is necessary to give strength to the truth. No, the truth speaks for itself. But pillar because 
in the old days, a pillar was something that brought, drew attention to something, made a display out of something. That's what the church does. It makes a display out of the church, out of the faith, confesses it, proclaims it, teaches it. But notice it is the household of the faith. A household is not just an institution. A household is a family. A household is a place of nurture, a place of growth, a place of safety, a place of development. A household is where you have brothers and sisters who live together under the care and guardianship of their parents. And that also is descriptive of the visible church. We talk about the church as an institution for good reason. There is an institutional aspect of the church's existence. But the danger, if we only ever speak of the church as an institute, is that we might begin to think of the church institutionally. But the church is not a bank. The church is not a university. The church is not a government complex. The church is a family. At bottom, that's what the church is, a family. It's a gathering of brothers and sisters who are so united together that, that they have been adopted by the same father into the same life and the same home. We share meals together within the household of the faith. Not just meals that we have on fellowship occasions, but true spiritual meals, the body and blood of our Lord, which we eat unto life eternal. We are washed together under the same faucet, if I may put it that way, in baptism. What gives power and meaning to all of these things is that it unites us together as a family. Now we have to understand that the household of faith is narrower than everything that exists in the world that might be called church. The faith means that there is definition. There is a confession, propositions that unite us together as a household. There's truth. And because there is truth, there is also such a thing as that which is false. And there is such a thing as a false church and false Christianity, which is an institution or an organization or a gathering that looks like the household of faith, but is not the household of faith, is in fact what Jesus would call a whitewashed sepulcher. That's important to keep in mind if we want to know where we have to go with the Apostle's word, especially. He says, especially the household of faith. Well, what is that? Where is that? Well, it's not everything that calls itself the household of faith. It's not everything that calls itself church. And yet the household of faith is probably broader than we may be inclined to think. The household of the faith is broader than the lines of any one denomination. The household of the faith ultimately includes every last person who will be sitting at the Lord's table when we enter into glory. That includes many who are sitting here 
right now, this moment. Look around at each other. Brothers and sisters who will be sharing life eternal around the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's true. But the household of the faith also includes many whom we have never met and perhaps never will meet in this life until we come to heaven. The household of the faith includes many who have been taught, who have been built up in the faith, and they know the content of the faith. They know the Bible backwards and forward. They know the truths of sovereign particular grace. It's a part of their very constitution. And it includes others who are still on the milk of the word, we might say, who do not understand those truths the way we do. The household of the faith includes stronger brothers, but it also includes weaker brothers. There are older brothers and there are younger brothers, but they are all part of the household of the faith. Now the apostle says, do good unto all men, but especially unto the household of faith. The apostle is clear then about where the focus of our working ought to be. Imagine for a minute a man who does all kinds of good works for everybody in his neighborhood. He is a community man. He goes out looking for poor people so that he can make sure that they have a hot meal and they have clothes on their backs for the day. He sends money across seas to help disaster victims that he hears about on the news. Everybody knows this is a man who does good to all men. And yet this man has a wife and children who never see him. And they barely have enough to scrape by. Well, I don't think that we would say that that man is really doing anything good, would we? All the supposed good that he's doing is undermined by the neglect, the inexcusable neglect of his own, which Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, renders a man worse than an infidel. If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Well, the same principle applies in the household of faith. So imagine you have a church that is very missional, very focused on outreach. The young people are being sent overseas to build houses for the poor. The bulletin boards are full of advertisements for community projects. The people are involved in soup kitchens and pantries. All for the sake of the community and the people in the world around us. All men. And yet, these young people who go on mission trips are barely even taught the basics of the Christian faith. And the people in the church though they are busy side by side doing all kinds of things in the community, working in soup kitchens, never dare bring up the subject when somebody is walking in sin and needs a word of admonition and correction. And the marriages that are being made are not marriages in the Lord. And the friendships that are being made are not friendships that are based and rooted in the common faith. You might ask the question, well, what good is all the good that is done in the community when the church itself as a family is falling apart due to neglect? And the young people are, when they get older, leaving because they don't even know the basics of the faith or what it is that makes them a part of this family. 
So Paul says this is where you start. In your own family, your own church, your own denomination. You are a person who has limited time, limited resources, limited opportunity. You're not going to save all the people in the world, and that's not what God calls you to do. But look around you again. Look around you. There are mothers here in this congregation, new mothers perhaps, who need a word of encouragement. There are young people right here, young people who need a mentor, who need adult men and women to stand up and give them a good example of what it means to be a Christian. You have a family of people right here with whom you are going to be spending life eternal. Do good, especially unto them. Certainly not to the neglect of what you have right here. And this is not to cancel out what we said before about doing good to all men. The beauty of focusing on the household of faith is that this actually ends up serving as an anchor that enables us to call out the broader calling of the text. Maybe some of us are critical of other churches that send their young people on mission trips. And maybe we have a good reason to be critical if those young people are not even learning the basics of the Christian faith. But doesn't our criticism fall a bit flat if we keep our own young people fully trained and fully catechized, safe and secure behind our own walls? Paul does not say, do good to all men. And now what I mean by all men is the household of faith and keep it there. No, do good to all men. And that still stands, even though we keep the focus at home. The broader calling still stands. And now don't get distracted by the specific examples. The point here is not about sending young people on mission trips. The point is, Focusing on the household of faith does not mean neglecting the calling to do good to all men. What is a household? What is a home? Well, it's a place of grounding. It's a place that gives you strength and rest and enables you then to go out and to do good and to do work. That's why you should spend most of your attention and time in the household, in the family, but when that household is properly maintained and held together, what, is it, what happens? It becomes a launch pad for going out and working. Beloved, if we were to do self-examination as churches, I suspect that we would find that we are typically better at the second part of Paul's calling. We know the part that says, especially they of the household of faith. And as evidence for that, I would just point to all the time and all of the energy and all of the money that is poured into our Christian schools. Teachers, tuition, textbooks, fundraisers, volunteer work. This is all taken care of without question. We spend a lot of time together. And that's good. That's the way it should be. That's a blessing from God. And what I'm about to say doesn't it all take away from the focus and energy that ought to be poured into the household of faith. 
And yet I wonder if we're not so good at the first part of the text. And I know I say we, and that's a broad brush statement. Yet I speak out of our culture as churches, as a member of that culture myself. Do we have a culture that really takes seriously the calling to do good to all men? Or maybe let's frame it this way. Is it possible that sometimes our focus on the household of faith becomes kind of an excuse? How can I do good to those people out there when I'm so busy here focusing on the household of faith? And again, there's something frightening about going out and doing good to those out there. It's much more comfortable in your home, isn't it? It's much more comfortable around your own family members with whom you share the same values and who all think the way that you do. But we need to be careful. What's going to happen when our schools are taken away from us? What's going to happen when our institutions fall and crumble to the ground? Where do we go then with this gospel-driven impulse that the Apostle Paul is teaching us in this book to go out and do good to all men? The second part of the calling is not intended to cancel out the first part. They're meant to be in harmony. So do good unto all men, especially they of the household of faith, and keep your eye on the harvest. The harvest is mentioned in verse 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. There we have the incentive. The incentive is that the harvest will follow upon regular, persistent, consistent doing of the good. As it always goes with sowing and reaping, this is just a fact of nature. The reaping only ever follows after the sowing. So much is this the case that when there is no sowing, there is no reaping. They are directly related to each other. Now, the apostle does not say in so many words exactly what harvest he has in mind. He simply says, in due time, we shall reap if we faint not. But we understand that reaping is a good thing. Reaping is what we want. A farmer who sweats and labors all summer long wants to see wheat growing up so that he can harvest it and put it in his barn. To reap, that's a blessing. To reap, that's the goal of all of our labors. So let's think about what the ultimate blessing is for the child of God who wants to do the good to others. What is the ultimate blessing for the person who is not using other people as a prop for his own righteousness like the Judaizers were doing? What is the goal in his doing of the good? Is it not when he sees this little child to whom he has given that cup of cold water in the name of Jesus Christ, confessing and believing in Jesus Christ and participating in and enjoying the same salvation that he does? Is it not when this man sees the household of faith flourishing and growing under the banner of Jesus Christ 
Isn't that the reaping? Let me be clearer. The reaping is not just a reaping that has reference to me, myself, and I, and my own joy. Not first of all. It's a reaping that has reference to the joy that I see in others as I now freely give of myself for their advantage. Because then I come to understand something of the very joy that belongs to God himself when he draws us to himself in love. What is God doing? What is God always doing? He's expending Himself. He's pouring out of Himself, giving, giving, giving of His life in Jesus Christ. And that's what fulfills His joy. That's what makes Him so happy and blessed and fulfilled that He gives and then sees this joy fulfilled in those to whom He gives it. That's the harvest. But this is an incentive, which means the Apostle intends to motivate us to do the good. In due season we shall reap if we faint not. Therefore, don't be weary in well-doing. That's because doing the good is exhausting, isn't it? It's a work that often is thankless and goes unacknowledged. It's a work that sometimes is actively opposed and results in suffering and struggle. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ, Paul says. But don't give up. In due season you shall reap. And what a reaping it shall be. What a reaping it shall be if one day in eternal life you are sitting down next to that little child whom you had the opportunity to witness to and to lead into salvation. And now that person who was alienated from God, alienated from the family of God, is in his family with you. To enjoy life with Christ in heaven. What a reaping. The positive way of making the same point is what Paul says in the beginning of verse 10. As we have opportunity. As we have opportunity. Now part of that is cautionary. As we have opportunity means time and circumstance. You don't have opportunity to save everybody. You don't have opportunity to give a witness to everybody. There's billions of people in the world today. We're not God. You're not Jesus Christ. You can't solve every problem. You can't save every person. And if you try, you're not going to end up doing good to anybody because you're not capable of it. But that phrase can also mean this. The opportunity is now. The opportunity is now. You're alive. You have air in your lungs. You have blood pumping in your veins. You're alive. And not just alive physically, but spiritually alive. Through the power of Jesus Christ and the gospel. You're alive. The opportunity is now. Now before the curtain closes, as we may say, on history and Jesus Christ comes and introduces the final state, the opportunity is now. Don't waste it. Do the good to all men, especially they of the household of faith, and rest assured as you labor in behalf of God, you shall reap. You shall reap. Amen. Let us pray. 
Our Father who art in heaven, this text weighs heavily on us. And if this text came to us as pure law, we would be crushed by it. And we, we would have no ability to carry it out. But it comes to us not as pure law, but it comes to us now in the light of the gospel. The gospel that sets us free. Free from self-love. Free from fear. Free from fear of rejection from Thee and from those around us. And We pray, O oh Father, strengthen our faith. Strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. And then, O oh Father, give us a desire to do the good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. We're thankful, O oh Father, for the good that Thou hast done through us. Thankful for the good that we see in our schools and in our life together as churches. What amazing blessings Thou hast given to us. But we pray, O oh Father, for the grace also to look beyond ourselves and to seek to be a good witness. Not because it is Thy will to save all men or because Thou dost love all men. We know that's not the case. But because Thou hast given us this privilege and opportunity to reflect Thy own nature by living outside of ourselves and seeking what is good to reflect Thine own good and beautiful nature. Let it be so, Father. Let it be so in us and in our children. Let our young people and children learn to do the good and to not be afraid to do the good. But that they do it without reservation, without fear. Well, Father, we have much room for growth, much room for increased sanctification. We pray for that. But bless us, O oh Father. Bless this congregation. Send us away from thy house now with thy blessing. And hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.